So like about two months ago, Michael brought that song out, and he said, hey, have you ever heard this song before? It's like, yeah, I know it well. If maybe if you're under 30, um, it, it's not familiar to you. That is a really old staple of the church, old hymn that typically was sung on Resurrection Morning. Favorite song of my mother's, and I'm sure she's in eternity singing it today. Uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal expression of what we know to be true. So for me, based on what I'm hearing from you, the way that you're singing this morning, you don't need to be convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. All right? It, it, it's... It, it's known that among the majority of Americans, the overwhelming majority, like 80% plus, say they believe in a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. That, that means that there's an issue among Americans. We don't necessarily need to be convinced of the resurrection. We need to understand what are the implications of the resurrection. What does it mean for me today March 27th, 2016, how does the resurrection change my life? Well, very simply, if you've never heard before, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins. And you can have eternity with God. It's just, you know, eternity, right? Okay, there's a simple way of saying it. That, that's what he offers us. We just cut right to the chase. So we need to be reminded of why the resurrection is important. My prayer for you over the last number of months, actually, and especially in this last couple weeks, is that you would have a fresh encounter with God on this Easter morning. So I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I pray this for myself all the time. God, I need a fresh encounter with you. Do that for yourself. Just whisper a prayer. Just offer it up to him. Say, God, I need a fresh encounter this morning. God hears that. Especially, especially if you need a second chance in knowing God. Especially if you need to meet Him again. Jesus offers second chances. Even if you feel disqualified this morning. And secretly, many people underneath feel as though they've been disqualified because of their past, because of their sin because of the baggage they carry with them. The truth is, we many times feel like we're not good enough. Well, here's a newsflash. Nobody in this auditorium is good enough, right? Jesus made us good enough. We don't measure up on our own. It's called grace. That's what He does for us. He makes us good enough. So i got good news for you. I'm going to start out with an Old Testament verse this morning, a reminder of the nature and the character of God. Look with me on the screen. It says this in Lamentations 3.22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. And another word for loving kindnesses is steadfast love, meaning something that cannot be changed. The author goes on to say why. Why? Because his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And so the author breaks out in praise and says, as a result of that, great is your faithfulness. See, that's the God I want to be reminded of. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that truth because we all fail. But God says His compassions never fail. His mercies are new every morning. Did you know that the Bible is jammed full of stories of individuals who needed to meet Jesus a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. They needed the do-over. 
Individuals who knew that God's activity had been in their life, and yet at some point they pushed away and said, no, I'm going my own way. I'm really not interested. Because of God's steadfast love, this loving kindness we're talking about here, because of that steadfast determination to pursue us, and it is God that pursues. Did you know that? God pursues us. Because of that steadfast determination to pursue us, He relentlessly comes again and again and again and trying to remind us that His mercies are new every morning. If we would just tap into that, Many people feel like they've disqualified themselves. Did you know that Moses was pursued by God? Elijah pursued by God? As you're going to see in just a moment, Peter was pursued by God. I'm going to pray with you right now as we go into John 21 that what God has to show us this morning will be fresh for you. So let's pray that way. Father, we come before you as this group who has gathered on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection we ask for specific, for specific things. We ask for this, that you would encounter us in a fresh way. Father, we sense your Holy Spirit here. It's undeniable. It's palpable. And so we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit to teach us. Remind us, God, of who we are in you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm guessing just prior to the resurrection, the first century followers of Jesus were just consumed with enormous loss. If you've ever lost someone who is really, really close to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't take but a moment for your mind to go back there. There's this sense of frustration mixed with anger and confusion, even to some degree some sense of rage but mostly it's just hurt. And I'm sure that that's what they're feeling in this moment. And they know nothing can change it because their life is intimately intertwined with this one who's now in a tomb. And in their mind, they can't change that. The Bible says the disciples were filled with all those emotions we just described. But then, then came Sunday morning, right? Right? And then these crazy rumors begin shooting through the city. And no one can dare believe it that there's this thought that Jesus is actually resurrected. And only eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Jesus actually convinces them that something absolutely new has broken out on planet Earth. Go with me to John chapter 21 as we examine what we're about to look at because when you come into John chapter 21, what you immediately recognize is this resurrection story comes to a screeching halt. When you come into John chapter 20, it describes the resurrection in detail. But John chapter 21, at the pinnacle of the greatest moment in history, God hits the brakes to help us grasp what it looks like to see his nature to pursue us even when we have stiff-armed him, even when we have rejected his purposes in our life. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to find him in the racks right around you, or you can follow along up on the screen if you'd like to do it that way. John chapter 21 and verse 1 starts out this way, and we find him at the lake shore. It says, after these things, meaning after the resurrection, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is a Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. They were just calling it in later years the Sea of Tiberias. So these things, after the resurrection, after all the events of chapter 20, we find the disciples leaving Jerusalem. 
Uh, Jesus has appeared a couple times in Jerusalem, but now they've been commanded to leave Jerusalem. We find that in Mark 14, 28. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So they're going to head north to a very specific location. Jesus says this in Matthew 28, 16. The 11 disciples needed to proceed to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, when you go into John chapter 21, you find Jesus has manifested himself at the sea, and that's the first indication there's a problem because he told them to go to the mountain, but they're not at the mountain. They're at the lakeside, and they have no business at the lakeside. Go with me to verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. I don't know what you know about Peter, but Peter is not known for his patience, right? Okay, so this is a guy who doesn't like to wait around for things. Well, whether he's tired of waiting for the other disciples to show up or he's not interested in waiting any longer for Jesus to show up, we don't know, but he decides, I'm going fishing. Well, what's going on? Fishing is what he knows best, right? He's been a commercial fisherman most of his life. So he's leaning back into something that's safe, something very familiar. Why? Because there's this sense of inadequacy. There's been a major failure in his life. In his relationship with Jesus, he has failed. And he's done some pretty egregious things. Now, we know that he was, you can finish this statement, he was chosen to be a fisher of men, right? If you grew up in church, you've heard that. Matthew 4 speaks to that specifically. Jesus said, Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Meaning, let's go out and catch people with the truth. Well, Peter had responded to that. He heard the invitation from Jesus, but now we find him in the boat fishing again. And John says in chapter 21, they caught nothing it was a useless night. Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Don't let that pass too quickly. God standing on a beach. You go back one chapter and you have God the Son dying for the sins of the world, buried in a tomb. Three days later, comes bursting forth everything you just sang about. So powerful of an event, it causes seismic activity on planet Earth. The tectonic plates in the crust of the Earth actually shift. Did you know that? Look with me on the screen. It says this in Matthew 28 too. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred because of the resurrection. But God hits the brakes. Now God is standing on the beach. And what's he doing? You go deep into chapter 21, and you see five words. Jesus stood on the beach. He's doing for them what he's done for you at times. Maybe he's doing it right now. He's giving them some, giving them some space. Space for failure. They're trying to do things on their own. They've gone back to their old life. Well, how do I know that for sure? Well, one, for because of the, the flow of the story, but also because of what Jesus does next. The question that he asks them, it really kind of anticipates a negative response. Go with me to the question. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, and he means that. They're acting like children. So the very specific word that's used there, children, 
You do not have any fish, do you? He already knows what's going on. It, it, depending on where the emphasis is at in the question, and the emphasis is on, do you? And they answered, no. Fail, right? So through this failure, God's bringing them face to face with their own inadequacy. So what you see next is like, you want fish? I'll give you guys some fish. Verse 6, and he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So the one who created fish begins calling them to the boat. Now, these guys, check this, they're no doubt completely exhausted. Commercial fishing in the first century, that's a lot of work, just like it is today. Guys are casting the nets all night long. Big nets, sane nets, they flip them out, they let them settle down onto the water, then they drag them back in drenched with water. They're heavy. They don't even have fish in them. They've been doing this all night long, according to John, trolling up and down the shore with no success whatsoever. And internally, if it's me, I'm in the boat and I'm thinking, this guy actually thinks they know the difference between the right-hand side and the left-hand side of the boat? That they listen to him is a mystery because verse 4 says they don't even know it's Jesus. But there's something authoritative in the voice, and so they yield. Verse 6, part B. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So they cast the net, the net settles down, settles on the water, and the Creator who directed fish away from them all night long to let them experience failure now commands this large school And the net is so full that men who make their living at sea can't even haul it in. Catch this. In spite of the fact that they're not doing what God had told them to do. In spite of the fact that they're not doing what God had asked of them. I love this. Jesus is still at work in their lives. Jesus is still at work pursuing even when we stiff arm and try and reject what he's asked us to do. See, God can leave them alone. He did not have to have the conversation with them. Yet what you're seeing here is God is pursuing them. So put yourself in the boat this morning. You've been in that place where you've chased your own direction. You've tried to figure out your own solutions. Maybe along the way you even walked away from a relationship with God. And now he shows up in the most unexpected place on a beach. Stop trying it your own way. Try the other side. Listen to me. Let's go a little bit deeper. Verse 7. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. So stripped for work means he's got like a loincloth on, right? Okay, so, so think Speedo. Okay. <laughs> I know, too much information, right? You don't want to be picturing that in your mind, but that's what's going on. So Peter's like stripped down. He's just got this loincloth on, and he doesn't want to wait to get to shore because he's an impatient guy. And he hears that it's Jesus, so he throws his clothes on because he can't go greet Jesus in a Speedo, right? Okay, so he puts his clothes on, and they get soaked, and he runs into shore. What was important An hour earlier is no longer important to him because God's confronting him. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards away dragging the net full of fish. We're getting an eyewitness account here. You catching that? 
It's a 90-year-old John who's writing this of something that happened to him when he was a much younger man saying, I remember a day when I could pull in, pull in a net from the lake full of fish. This is fun stuff. Verse 9, so when they get out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And immediately you're looking at that thinking like, well, has Jesus been to the store? How does that happen? The bag of Kingsford is burning and there's fish already cooking. Here's what I'm speculating. The God who brings manna down from heaven has created fish. He's made breakfast for these guys because he needs to speak to a basic human need. Go to verse 10. So Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Peter's a pretty strong guy, right, physically. He's able to haul in this net by himself, full of these large fish, draw it up on shore. If you've been out on the water for any length of time whatsoever, maybe doing a little boating, you know what it is to come back in after that experience and find a fire roaring on the beach. And then some fresh food cooking for you, like fish tacos, man. Okay, I'm checking this out. I'm thinking, I haven't eaten yet today. This sounds good. Just reading, I'm like, mmm. So Jesus says, let's eat breakfast together, guys. Verse 12, so Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. They know that it's Jesus, but they don't want to say that it's Jesus. Enough of his appearance has changed that they recognize features of him, but they don't want to say it. What's going on? There's a sense of guilt in that verse, a sense of unworthiness, a sense of recognizing they're in the presence of the risen king of kings and that they don't even want to acknowledge it because, you know, they're not doing what the risen king of kings had told them to do. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Apparently, they're so overwhelmed by the invitation from this risen king that they can't even take the food themselves. Jesus has to put it right into their hands. Now, context. Peter's already had a morning swim, right? He's been out. He's been moving through the water. He's had a chance to come into shore and to dry off and to get warm and to satisfy his hunger. And God has met his basic needs. Verse 15, part A. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? God never makes it easy when we're living in disobedience. If, if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When God has to push hard on our heart, He gets right to it. So notice what your God is doing here. He doesn't allow this false sense of confidence about the relationship because the relationship is broken and God's initiating the fix. What do we know about Peter's background? Three times the night Jesus is arrested. Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I have no relationship with him. I blankety, blankety, blank, don't know the guy. 
Three-stage denial, right? Then at the crucifixion, we're told everybody flees except John and Jesus' mom and, and some of the Marys. So Peter's gone from that. At the tomb, Peter's completely complexed. Even though Jesus had said to him, this is what's going to happen. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. Peter goes into the tomb and he's thoroughly confused. And we not only find him perplexed, now we find him going back to his old way of life. He's in the boat and he's been fishing. So it's not surprising to me that I I even think that Peter's cringing in this moment in verse 15 when you see Jesus say to him, Simon, son of John. Why call him Simon, son of John? I thought his name was Peter. Simon, son of John, is what he was known by before Jesus. See, he's literally gone back to his old way. So Peter is not even acknowledged by the name that Jesus gave him, the rock, because he's gone back to the place of beginning. And he's being brought face to face with his failure. See, God never beats around the bush. So he pushes pretty hard. And he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? This is a really pointed question. Theologians for hundreds, thousands of years have debated what's going on here. Because in the Greek language, Jesus is using one word, agape, and Peter's using the word phileo. Agape is really high love. Phileo is really low love. I don't think that's what's going on here. It's wordplay in the Greek language, but the bigger issue is Jesus is going right to the heart. See, Peter obviously had a really high position among the disciples, and he had had a really, really high opinion of who he was in relationship to God and his love for God. On the night of the betrayal, before they went to the garden, Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room, on account of me, you will all fall away on this night. Peter's response, two verses later, everybody else may, but not me. These guys may all fall away, but my love is greater than these guys. Everyone else may abandon you, but not me. See, Peter had hardly lived up to his own definition of how much he belonged. Verse 15, part B, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus lets Peter's answer the first time slide. And he says to him, part C, verse 15, tend my lambs. This is not a one-time thing. You don't just water sheep one time and then walk away. Tend my lambs means an ongoing action, right? That's the way it's written in the language. Keep doing it, Peter. Stop pretending. Be totally committed. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You notice there's no longer more than these in there, right? Do you love me? Let's just get right to it, Peter. Do you belong to me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to, them the thir- he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter's grief is so deep that the word that's used in the Bible to describe it is actually associated with somebody who's in mourning over the loss of a family member. The grief is that deep. The frustration is that real. It's heavy sorrow. There's a reason for the grief. The first time Jesus asked the question, do you love me, was answered flippantly. You know I like you. You know I'm all in. You know that I'm really there. 
But by the time you get to the third question, the grief sets in. Because Jesus is not letting him go with an easy response. Instead, he's probing, working on this wounded heart. Because superficial responses to a resurrected king of kings does not cut it. It's like somebody showing up at an Easter service and a worship leader saying, he is risen, and somebody else shouting back, he is risen indeed, and having it mean absolutely nothing in their life. Because it's just lip service. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Is this real for you? Why is this so hurtful though? Imagine the scene as John has staged it for us. If you know the story at all, you can answer this. When Jesus was on trial for his life and Peter stood outside the palace watching the trial, Scripture says very specifically he was warming himself over what, church? A fire, right? Charcoal fire. We have a charcoal fire here on the beach. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times has Jesus brought the question right back to Peter? Three. See, you don't have to be a genius to connect this event to the denial. Exactly what God is doing is pushing on Peter's heart because he has failed big time. And facing up to your own sin, facing up to your own failure is a traumatic experience. That's why he's grieving so deeply here. Last Supper, Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. Peter says, I am not going to fall away. God's calling him on it. And it's breaking Peter's heart. Watch Peter's response, verse 17, part B. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Does God know all things, church? Let's answer that like we mean it. Does God know all things? Yes. Yes, okay. If God knows all things, then he knows who's totally committed and who's not. In other words, he knows who's a poser. I don't, you don't, but God does. And he knows that Peter has been at this place where his words don't match his actions. What he says is not followed up by how he's living. And it's so hard for Peter to hear. Now, if you've been waiting and looking for Happy Sunday, Happy Sunday is here, right? Because where we're going next. Peter's failures are not the end. And praise God, our failures are not the end. Let let me take you into where this story's going. Just two remaining verses. Verse 18. Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking. He's saying, pay attention, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. In other words, Peter, you've done whatever you wanted all throughout your life. You've had freedom to roam. From this point forward, you're going to have opportunities to glorify me. In other words, you're going to get back in the game. What you've done is in your past. There's a future for you. Even by your death, you're going to bring glory to my name. Verse 19, part B, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now that phrase is really important, right? Because Peter's heard that phrase before. 
the first time he met Jesus on the beach. When Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, Peter needed to meet Jesus the second time. Here's what I know is going on because this is human nature. Some of you are experiencing this right now. Peter is looking at what he did. And he's disqualified himself. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on in this story. I'm pretty sure that's why Jesus is pushing so hard. So if you remember nothing else about this morning, remember this if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling you this. Get your eyes off your past. Do not let your past weigh you down. Jesus is saying, don't let this stop you from following me. I'm calling you to do something. Can I remind you of the nature and the character of our God by going back to the anchor verse we started with from Lamentations? Look with me on the screen. Lamentations 3.22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. You come to my house an hour from now, you come to my house tomorrow, you'll find that verse inscribed on a piece of chalkboard in my wife's kitchen. That verse is real. We believe it. That's what God says to us. Uh, My mercies never end. That's why the author says, great is your faithfulness. It is in moments like these that most people fall into this pattern of thinking, Mark, you have no idea what I have done. You don't know my past. You don't know the sins. You don't know what I've done. And besides, that's like Peter He's like a saint. And God's talking 2,000 years ago. Well, you're right. If that's what you're thinking, I don't know your past, but I know that God does. And Jesus is the one who knows the absolute worst about you. And yet, He is the one who loves you the most. I'm surprised there's not an amen after that. (laughs) I, I just need to repeat that again. Because Jesus has got all the dirt on us, church. And yet he loves us. He died for us. Jesus is the one who knows the absolute worst about you, which you've never told anybody else, your deepest, darkest secret. Yet he's the one who loves you in spite of it. That's what is truth. So if you're thinking that's like 2,000 years ago, Let me remind you of these three things. Look with me on the screen. The nature and character of God. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. The verses you're about to see are all Old Testament. Why do I use that? Because God says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Malachi 3.6. Look at Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that He should lie. So if He said He's going to forgive, He will forgive. What exactly does that look like? Well, according to Exodus 34, this is what God says about himself. Moses says, tell me your name. This is God's response. He, the Lord God, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You got iniquity in your life? You got transgression? Sin? That's unconfessed? What is your response? How do you deal with that sin? If, it, if that's really real, if that's something in your life and you're a believer this morning, this is what Scripture says. 
confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's if you're a follower of Jesus. You bring it before him and say, God, there's an obstacle in my life that's keeping me from doing the things you've called me to do, and I'm just going to trust you that you're going to forgive me of that. I'm going to give you a verse to chew on while I talk to those who are not yet believers. So this verse you're seeing going on the screen, this is, this is for those who are believers in Jesus. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How much is abundantly? It's like, <laughs> you can't measure it. That's your God. I'm going to ask you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning and you find yourself fighting against things that constantly weigh you down and you believe there's this sin issue that you just can't conquer, just take a moment and lift it up to the Father and say, God, this is real. I've got to confess this. You don't have to do it out loud. Just go into prayer. Nobody's going to judge you. Just start talking to the Father. You, you do that while I talk to those who might not yet be where you're at, who are not yet in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and, and church is completely new to you or maybe you've never heard this stuff before, that Jesus will forgive you of your sins, he doesn't just forgive you of your sins. He says, I'll take you into eternity with me if you name me as Lord and Savior. Hear this. God could have left Peter in the boat. You tracking with me? God could have left Peter in the boat standing on the shore. He's watching him. Then he makes himself visible and they can see him. But God did not have to have the conversation. It could have been more like Peter is such a screw up. I mean, he's messed up so many times. I'm done with him. I'm just walking away. But that's not the nature and character of our God. He pursues us. So instead, God initiates the relationship. You know what it's called? It's called mercy. That's God. So if you have not yet followed Jesus, if you have not yet acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, what's your response to this this morning? Um, very simply, I'm going to talk you through what you need to do if you want to. First of all, hear this. If you're feeling a sense of conviction over your own sin, your own failure, know this, it is the Holy Spirit of the living God at work in your life right now. Because Satan won't do that for you. Satan wants you to continue to be active in sin. God's Holy Spirit brings conviction about sin in our life. So if you're feeling a sense of conviction, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. So what does the resurrection actually mean for you today? Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have your sins completely forgiven and eternal life with God in heaven. You want that? That's what God's offering to you. I'm gonna ask everybody in this auditorium to close their eyes, and I'm gonna show you how to pray if you want to receive that, if that's real for you this morning. So let me just talk you through it right now. You just echo this back to the Father. You can do it just in the quietness of your whisper. Heavenly Father, I believe that I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. And you sent him to die for me. I also believe that you raised him from the dead and that he was resurrected as proof 
that this stuff is real. So God, I'm asking you, forgive me of my sin. Just echo that up to him. Father, forgive me of my sin. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. I want a brand new beginning. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed, and if you prayed that, would you just gently slip your hand up? I see hands around the auditorium. More importantly, you can put them down. God sees those hands. Heavenly Father, I know that you recognize the hearts of your people and you recognize these individuals who have just identified themselves with Jesus Christ. They have asked for forgiveness and you have granted it simply by us asking for it and recognizing who Jesus is. So Father, I ask that even when the enemy comes around, when Satan tries to remind them of how unworthy they are, they can say back like the rest of us, that's right, but Jesus made me worthy. Father, remind them of that. Remind all of us of that. We are worthy because of the risen King. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you just acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior, welcome to the family of God. Here's a very important detail. After you leave the service, there are free Bibles on a table outside in the atrium. If you would like, take one of those free Bibles with you because they're there. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word, but here's, an, here's a cool part of it. There's a little packet with each Bible. And, and it literally is saying, okay, how do I know for sure I'm saved? Pick that up, take it with you. Nobody's gonna stand in judgment of you. We want you to have those, so take one with you when you leave this morning. If you'd like for one of us on staff, on the leadership team to follow up with you, inside the bulletin are these little cards. You can just put your name on there. Drop it in the offering box after the service. We'd be happy, we'd be honored to be able to follow up with you. Right now, believers in Jesus Christ, I invite you to stand and let's worship the King together.